Hi friends and family, uh, please note that this is a re-recording of Sunday Sermon. Uh, Sunday Sermon was, uh, for some technical reason, uh, not recorded. Uh, so I'm just taking out the time now just to quickly re-record it. Um, I won't be able to recapture uh, Sunday's uh, message in full, um, but I'm just going to do my best to uh, go through uh, some of the important points and um, key points of the message. So thank you for your understanding. Um, over the last uh, few weeks we've been dealing with uh, the primeval history of Genesis. Uh, we are still uh, on our Genesis series. This is the third part of the uh, series. Uh, we first dealt with the creation account and last week we dealt with the fall narrative temptation narrative and uh, this sunday past sunday we dealt uh, with the flood of noah and so our reading is taken from genesis chapter 7 and i'm reading from the new king james version then the lord said to noah come into the ark you and your household because i've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation you shall take with you seven of each clean animal, a male and, a f and his female, uh, two each of animals that are unclean, male and his female, also seven of each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made and Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded Noah was 600 years old uh, when the flood waters were on the earth so Noah with his sons his wife and his sons wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean animals of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights on the very same day noah and noah's sons shem ham and japheth and noah's wife and the three wives of his sons were with him they entered the ark they and every beast after its kind all the cattle after their kind every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah two by two of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded them. And the Lord shut him in. Verse 17. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth the waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark uh, moved about on the surface of the waters and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered the waters prevailed 15 cubits upwards and the mountains were covered and all flesh died that moved on the earth birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life all that was on dry land died so he destroyed all living things that were on the face of the earth both man and cattle creeping thing and birds of the air they were destroyed from the earth only Noah and those who were in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Amen. God bless to us. 
the reading of his word. Father, I pray, Lord, that uh, even as we share and discuss your word uh, today, that, Lord, you will bless the hearer, uh, you'll anoint their, their ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Speak to our hearts uh, today. Uh, let your word confront us, challenge us, and change us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 As you know, uh, Moses authored the first five books of the Bible. Uh, in Hebrew is known as the Torah, Greek, the Pentateuch. Genesis is the first book that he wrote. It was written 3,500 years ago, and Genesis spans a, a period of about 2,000 years. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Torah, so it lays down the foundation and the tone for the Torah. Uh, the Torah that will find its uh, you know, uh, culmination and full expression uh, in the giving of the law. Uh, Genesis is structured uh, uh, in two parts. Uh, from chapters 1 to 11, you have primeval history, which is four important events. There's creation, the fall of Adam and Eve, you have the flood, and then you have the Tower of Babel. Second half of Genesis is between chapters 12 and 50, which deals with patriarchal history, where four important figures arise as Aram, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, the overall purpose of Genesis is to introduce us uh, to our Creator and to give us a trace of human history and also to, uh, uh, to underline the, the, the plot, redemptive plot of, uh, of the Bible narrative, uh, which uh, in Genesis, we find it's a tragic one because we have uh, a living God that is reaching out to a sinful, rebellious, and, and fallen man. The underlying question, the big question about Genesis is, uh, is, 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 is quite simple. Uh, it's the same question that the serpent posed to Eve in the garden. Uh, did God really say? And that's the fundamental question around Genesis. Will you believe what God says? Or will you believe what man teaches? Will you believe what God teaches? Or will you believe uh, the lies of the enemy? And so uh, when we look back at last week, uh, last week we went into detail uh, around the subject of sin as we looked at the, the temptation narrative. And uh, as we look at how Satan, the serpent of old, cunningly deceived Adam, and, well, not Adam, Eve in particular. Uh, Adam was uh, not deceived, but Adam blatantly disobeyed. And uh, when we looked at sin in particular, we defined sin, uh, the way the Greek defines sin, uh, it's referred to in Greek as homartia, which uh, means to miss the mark. To deviate from God's moral law and sin fundamentally is a rebellion against God. MacArthur and May um, mentioned and stated uh, quote the sin must be understood from a theocentric or God-centered standpoint unquote. Uh, so sin at its core is a violation of the creature or creator-creature relationship uh, but we must see sin from God's point of view. Of view, we must see sin and understand sin from God's standpoint. Um, and so, when we look at sin, and when we discussed it last week, we saw that sin, um, in in a all-encompassing view, is uh, fundamentally uh, the demand that we have to self-rule, to be autonomous from God, to rule ourselves. Uh, we also stated that sin is rooted in pride and ingratitude. Uh, when we looked at the temptation narrative, we saw that uh, Eve was tempted to eat the forbidden fruit uh, so that she will become like God. And uh, she saw that the fruit was good to make her, uh, her wise, to make one wise. And so in an attempt to become like God, uh, she and man uh, and Adam became less like God and uh, uh, we also mentioned that sin is not just rooted in pride it's rooted in ingratitude because the the serpent deceptively drew Eve's attention away from the provisions of God that God has freely provided and uh, he got it to focus on uh, the prohibition of God 
and he grossly exaggerates the prohibitions of God. And, uh, and so uh, he drew Eve's attention from everything that God has said yes to, uh, to get her to focus on what God has said no to. And so uh, in that we see um, the ingratitude of, of Eve and Adam displayed. Romans 1 puts it this way, uh, speaking of God, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were dark, and professing to be wise, they became fools. And so, uh, sin is rooted in both pride and ingratitude. We also discussed uh, how sin entered the world. Um, sin entered the world uh, and the cosmos, uh, essentially from from uh, from the serpent, from Lucifer, uh, entered his heart. He is the father of lies. Uh, he sinned from the beginning, uh, but sin entered into the earth and to humanity through Adam. And then if we also looked at the first time the gospel was mentioned in uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, where God announces a sentence on the serpent, on Lucifer. Um, and in Latin, this is called the Protevangelium, uh, the first proclamation of the gospel. So God spoke. Uh, to the serpents and judged him and said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise uh, his heel. And we also noted that, note that it's important to see that in the first proclamation of the gospel, uh, this was a sentence of Satan. And, uh, and seeing that it is a sentence passed on Satan, uh, we also see that it's, it's not a direct promise to man's need for salvation and redemption. Um, and when we said this and, and stated this last week, uh, we noted that uh, redemption and the saving of man has as much to do with God's rule uh, as man's need. And so re the redemption of man and salvation of man has to do about uh, has to do with God's glory, God's sovereignty, uh, God's power, and God's uh, dominion. In the first proclamation of the gospel and the senses passed on Satan, we have a hint to the virgin birth because uh, God told uh, the serpent that uh, the, the seed of the woman will bruise his head. Uh, and so a woman don't carry seed, a woman carry eggs. And so this is a hint to the virgin birth. Uh, God was declaring that the Messiah would come. Uh, so we also see that, a, that there's a promise of a Messiah that will bring deliverance. Um, and so in the first proclamation of the gospel, we see the hint of the virgin birth. We see the promise of a deliverer. And um, we see that uh, the first proclamation of the gospel does not deal directly with man's need, but um, uh, it deals with God's rule uh, and God's, God's glory. So what's important to understand, uh, especially when we approach uh, the book of Genesis, uh, especially the first 11 chapters, is, uh, is how we understand Scripture and how we approach Scripture. Um, for me, there's only one, one way to understand Scripture, and that's in a literal, grammatical, and historical approach. So when I say that, I, I simply mean that we take the Bible literally unless it's demanding uh, by a clear representation uh, that it's figurative language. And, and it's easy to see when you read the scripture when, uh, or the scriptures when, when you come across a simile or metaphor, figure of speech or metonymy. And these devices and instruments are clear and easy to see. So unless there is a clear uh, demand uh, that this is uh, a representation of figurative language, uh, then we interpret it so. But 
as a rule of law, we read the plain language of the text. The plain, plain language of the text, and unless it's clearly stipulated uh, by the text editors, uh, figurative language, and then uh, we approach it that way. We also take into account the grammar, uh, the grammatical structure of, of scripture, and grammar functions in the same way it does in the Bible as it does today. Uh, nouns correspond with verbs and subjects correspond with, with objects. We also take the scriptures uh, in the Bible uh, in its historical setting. In other words, it's not myth, it's not folktale, it's not a legend, and uh, the Bible is not an allegorical book. Okay, It's an historical uh, book and it should always be placed in its historical setting. Uh, and so um, I said that to say this, that when we approach the story of the flood of Noah, um, it's important to understand that this is not a local flood. This is a global flood. Okay. And, and uh, three ways in which we can tell that this is a global flood is firstly, you see in scripture, the extensive language used. In other words, the language used to describe the flood does not allude to a local flood. Secondly, the size of the boat, uh, the boat was approximately 3,600 to 4,000 uh, square meters. Uh, so the, the size of the boat does not fit the idea of a local flood. Uh, if it was a local flood, no one in his family could have simply immigrated or moved, uh, moved countries. And the third reason we know this is not a local flood is because of the comprehensive promise of God you find in Genesis 8, verse 21, uh, where God said, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. And so we know clearly from scripture, from the extensive language used, from the size of the boat, and the comprehensive promise of God that this could not have been a local, uh, a local flood. Um, so the event of the flood and the building of Noah's ark is a well-known story, uh, both in scripture, acknowledged by scripture, and outside of the biblical uh, narrative. And so when you read uh, uh, Genesis chapter 6 to 8, it goes into great detail about, about the flood that God brought on the earth, the flood that God used to judge the earth, and you will see in, in, in scripture um, that Jesus makes reference to, uh, to the flood of Noah in Matthew 24 when he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the, day, in the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, in that day, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Uh, and, and, and then the flood came and took them all, all away. Okay, so Jesus built uh, his teaching on the second coming, his second coming, on the reference of, of Noah's flood. We also see Peter uh, make reference uh, to the flood in the second, first epistle and his second epistle. When he refers to Noah being a preacher of righteousness and how he was one who was saved from the judgment of, of the flood. Uh, Hebrews 11 also speaks of, of Noah who by faith built an ark uh, and, and who was saved with his family uh, through faith and how he became an heir of, of righteousness. And so the Hebrew writer Jesus himself and the Apostle Peter made reference to this historical event. So not only do we have a clear description of the flood in Scripture, also outside of Scripture, uh, we have over 200 ancient civilizations who give account to uh, the, 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 the flood of, of Noah. Um, you'll find stories of the flood being told in the Middle East, um, in Africa, the Pacific Islands, Far East Europe, Asia, Hellenic cultures, North America, Central America, and South America also uh, tell stories of, of a great flood that once came upon the earth. Now, uh, and anthropologists, uh, anthropologists are, 
uh, uh, people who study uh, customs and beliefs uh, and relationships in, in civilizations, they've discovered that um, uh, that the, the flood story actually is told in every sector of society uh, from the Greeks, Polynesians, Aboriginals, Celtics, Irish and Mesoamericans. Uh, almost every uh, civilization of old tell, told a story of the flood. And uh, it's, it's, it's my belief since uh, you know, all mankind came from Noah's sons, uh, Shem, uh, Shem, Ham and Japheth that the memory of the flood would be imprinted upon the collective memory uh, of the ancient world. And as they migrated and, and moved out to various sectors of the world, they would have told the story um, to their people and, 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 and in their civilization. Uh, so so when, when we look at... Um, when we look at the story of the flood being told outside of scripture, uh, James Montgomery Boyce um, gives us some insight into uh, the recordings of the flood that were told by, by tribes and various people group, uh, groups. Uh, he mentions that the Samokubo tribe uh, of New Guinea reports the story of a global uh, flood. The, at the Pascan tribe uh, among the American Indians also told the story of, of a flood. The Papago Indians of Arizona told the story of a flood. Uh, the Algonquins who lived in the northern eastern uh, section of America, United States of America, they relay the story about this evil snake who brought a flood upon the earth. Um, Montgomery Boyce also mentioned the Brazilian tribes that had knowledge of a great deluge that covered the face of the earth, the Peru Indians that had reported um, of a great flood that drowned many people and uh, of how six uh, people survived the flood and they were the progenitors uh, of the now existing races. Um, Boyce also recalls um, the original inhabitants of Cuba that believed an old man, knowing of a flood to come, built a ship. Uh, him and his family were saved with the abundance of animals. Um, so the inhabitants of, of Cuba told a story of a flood, even uh, recorded in the, in the Mexican flood tradition that a man by the name of Cox Cox um, saved himself and his family as they built an ark. Uh, the natives of Alaska also told a story of uh, a man who was warned in a dream of a flood to come and he built himself a raft and saved his family and the animals. Uh, but closer to home, the Hottentots also uh, recall of uh, a man by the name of Noah uh, that survived the flood. The Hawaiians told the story of the flood. The people of Wales have a legend about the flood. The Lentinians also told a story of a great flood. The traditions of India and China tell the same stories, but with a bit more detail. Uh, in Chinese traditions, um, a man by the name of uh, Fohai escapes a flood with his wife, three sons, and their three daughters, and they um, turn repopulate the earth. Uh, when you look up across all these uh, flood traditions, um, the stories differ from from uh, civilization to civilization, but there's, there's some common threads that uh, you'll find standing agreements. Uh, so in all these 200 stories outside of scripture in ancient civilizations about the flood, uh, in 88% of these stories, uh, they all agree on, on the fact that there was a favored family. 70% of these stories, uh, the survival was due to a boat. In 95% of these stories, uh, the sole cause of the flood uh, or, or destruction was a flood. In 66% of these uh, stories across these civilizations, uh, the reason why there was this flood was due to man's wickedness. In 67% of these stories, animals are saved. In 
the survivors end up on the mountain. And in smaller percentage of these stories, when you compare them, uh, uh, birds are sent out, the rainbow is mentioned, and eight people are specifically saved. And so, um, f personally, this is uh, belief uh, or evidence that the, there was a flood on the earth. So it's important what worldview you take, because if you have the biblical worldview, um, it's, it's easy to gather the evidence and see the evidence. But if you have an atheistic worldview, uh, you are most likely to brush us off as just mere folktale. Uh, the evidence we have of a global flood today, there are four or five uh, pieces of evidence that we can look at. Firstly, I'll run through them very quickly. Uh, the fossils of sea creatures uh, can be found above sea level. Uh, due to the ocean waters that uh, flooded over the continents. Uh, so there is evidence of fossilized marine life, uh, even on the highest mountains uh, of the world, like Mount Everest. Uh, second evidence we have is a rap rapid burial of plants and animals. So we find extensive fossil graveyards that have been, uh, have been pre preserved. Uh, third evidence we have is uh, the rapidly deposited sediment layers that you'll find, uh, find that spread out across the areas. Uh, we find rock layers that can be traced all the way across continents, between continents, and you'll actually be able to see the physical features of uh, the strata and layers of, of sediments that, uh, that indicate that they were once deposited rapidly. Uh, another piece of evidence we have is that these, these sediments were transported over long distances between countries. Um, and lastly, uh, you'll be able to view on some mountain rock features, how layers have been folded um, and laid down in rapid succession, which is indication of, of a flood that had occurred uh, on a grand scale. And so... Um, very quickly, uh, we usually do a, a Bible topic, and just to uh, divert a little, um, there, are, there are a few people who ask the question, if evolution is wrong, then that means that God created every single species that now exists. Given this, how did all these species fit on Noah's Ark? And that's a valid question. If there are millions of species alive today, how did Noah manage to fit them all on the ark? And that's the question that most, uh, most atheists uh, or doubters uh, will ask. And to tackle this question, we, we have to uh, define a few things. Um, firstly, uh, what is natural selection? Um, now, in our first part series of Genesis, we, we looked at uh, evolutionism uh, against creationism, uh, and we mentioned uh, natural selection. Firstly, I must state that natural selection is a process where species adapt to their environment. And atheists and evolutionists uh, speak of natural selection in relation to evolution. But natural selection, um, as we look at it from a biblical worldview, um, is not a mechanism uh, or argument for evolution, but it's actually supported publicly and uh, scientifically, of course. Okay, so um, nat natural selection is defined as a process where species adapt to the environment. Okay. A natural selection is a God-ordained process that allows organisms and species to survive. There are two types of, uh, of science, and it's important to notice. Um, there's what we call operational science, and there's origin science. Operational science is what scientists can observe in a, in a lab or in the field. Uh, it's a process that involves uh, taking measurements, uh, making observations that are in the present and in the now, 
and operational science is repeatable and it's reportable. Origins, uh, origin science on the on the opposite end end of things uh, is where scientists take current observations and then they draw conclusions based on these observations backwards in time. And where this leads uh, is often scientists claiming that uh, non-living matter once organized itself into living material. And uh, essentially what they're saying is non-life produces life. Or everything we have today comes from from nothing. Origin science is not operational science, but uh, in my opinion, it is a belief system. It's a belief system. Okay. So when we look at natural selection, um, and when we look at at animals adapting to the environments. Um, there is something that occurs within a species, an animal kind, um, which scientists refer to as speciation. Speciation is when new species occur within its family kind. Okay, so when the Bible speaks of God creating animals of this kind, birds of this kind, it is speaking of uh, God making specific species uh, and breeds of animals according to its family grouping. Okay. Uh, so uh, God made wild animals according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, creatures that move and creeping things in the earth, reptiles according to their kind. Uh, new species does not adapt or evolve outside of its kind. In other words, a chicken cannot adapt or evolve to become a goat. And a dog cannot adapt and, 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 to, and change into becoming a bird. Nothing adapts or evolves outside of its kind. And that's how God had, had set it. Okay. Uh, so how do, or how does speciation take uh, takes place? Uh, speciation occurs um, when there are geographical changes, climate changes, social changes, or interbreeding within the fa uh, family group, or sometimes when genetic variation takes place. Uh, some genes in the gene pool will be passed on, uh, and sometimes others won't. Okay. Uh, so sometimes we create or, or new species are created when uh, there are certain specific geographical changes. For example, um, if you take a pair of grizzly bears or family of grizzly bears uh, or bears in general and you separate them um, from one continent to another continent, and one climate and area is different in, in, in weather conditions, in, in the kind of uh, food and vegetation or, or, or dietary uh, uh, changes that, that, that exist, you'll find certain adaptations take place between these, uh, these species and they eventually speciate uh, and then you'll uh, like in the case of the grizzly bear, uh, you have, you have uh, in the United States, um, you'll find ordinary grizzly bear bears, and then towards Alaska, you'll find these polar bears. And uh, this is just a classic example of how bears speciate. Okay. Uh, also, breeding within the family group, um, like if you breed a wolf and a domestic dog you'll get a specific species. Uh, we've done that as, as humans. We've bred uh, the uh, American Bulldog. We've we bred that with the Bull or Terrier, and we ended up with the Pitbull. 
Okay, so when breeding takes place within the uh, family group, uh, you get speciation. Okay, now back to the question. Okay, how, were, how was Noah able to fit all the species on the ark? He didn't need to. Okay, he did not need to fit all the animals and species on the ark. He just needed animals or species um, of its kind. Okay. Uh, so uh, scholars estimate that between uh, 7,876 to 9,000 pairs of animals, vertebrates, mammals were on Noah's Ark. Land-dependent, air-breathing vertebrates, they were on the Ark of Noah. Uh, most scholars estimate that there were between 16,000 20,000 species uh, represented uh, of each kind on Noah's uh, ark um, so uh, it's the, the worst estimation we have of the number of animals that Noah had uh, to care for and look after on the on the ark was was possibly around uh, be, between 10,000 and 11,000 an, uh, animals uh, scholars suggest um, yeah so in in conclusion in conclusion, it is very possible, and it was possible, uh, for millions of animals and species to exist today because of the thousands of animals after their own kind that were in the ark in, in Noah's time. Scientists have also mentioned that speciation can take place and, and new species can occur in as little as two generations. And you do not need millions and millions and millions of, of years for, for speciation to, to take place. And given the ecology and, and, the, and the ancient world, uh, this would have happened at a faster rate. Okay, now getting into the message uh, surrounding Noah and the flood. And I'm going to go to this uh, very quickly. Okay. Uh, so the context surrounding the story of the flood is that God brings judgment on humanity for their wickedness. Um, so we have to ask ourselves the question uh, at this point, why did the flood happen? Okay, If we take into account the lengthy lifespans of the people who existed in the time of Noah, uh, it's actually estimated that the population could have been anywhere between 750 million uh, people to 2 billion people. Who existed in the time of Noah, and uh, and and so when the flood occurred, and when God judged the judged the earth, it's possible that uh, close to two billion people drowned. Okay, Bible says in Genesis seven verse twenty two that all flesh died that moved on the earth: the birds, the cattle, the beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man died. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life. All that was on the land, dry land died. The number of animals that died is unknown. Uh, the number of exact people that died is unknown. And undoubtedly amongst these uh, people and animals uh, were children uh, that, uh, that died with the flood. Now at this point... Uh, it's important for us to know that scripture uh, often presents us with some uncomfortable truths and realities. Um, and this historical event of the flood is no exception. It's an uncomfortable reality uh, that we have to meet in the scriptures. And it's important for us to understand that if we're going to understand who God is, we need to know that he's not like us. Okay. So when we bring God's actions into scrutiny, effectively we are presuming that God can be judged like any one of us. We presume that God can be judged like a man. Thirdly, we, we need to understand that He is sovereign over all His creation. He is our Creator and that there's a drastic difference between who he is and who we are 
between what we perceive his rights to be and what our rights are. And, and this is not an emotionally satisfying truth or concept that we have to deal with about God, but we need to understand this, uh, that, that he is God. And we've never been entirely comfortable with the idea of God being God. But we need to accept this fact that God is God and we are not God. And we can never bring God under scrutiny. He himself is the standard of truth. And nothing he does compromises on who he is, on his goodness or his faithfulness uh, or his sovereignty. Uh, back to the, to the question, why did, why did the flood happen? And, and the answer is quite simple and staggering. When we read Genesis 6, 5 to, 5 to, to, to 6, the Bible says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And that's the answer. The flood happened because God had regretted that he made human beings. And it was Paulson who stated that, uh, that this particular verse is surely one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible because it communicates God's feeling so clearly that led him to his resolve to wipe out the entire human race. But note verses 5 um, of chapter 6. Bible says the Lord saw the great wickedness of the human race. God saw the great wickedness of the human race. And these are the ex almost exact words uh, that we find echoed in chapter 1. Or rather not echoed, chapter five, uh, chapter 6 verse 5 is an echo of chapter 1 verse 30, 31. Where the Bible says when God was done with creation, God saw all that he had made. God saw all that he, was, he had made and it was very good. And it was Wenham who stated that, that this is, is an echo uh, of, of, of creation. When, when God created the world and the organized universe, he saw that it was good. And now when we get to chapter 6... And God looks upon humanity and he now sees only wickedness in the hearts of men. And so um, uh, these words only, when the Bible says God saw their wickedness, only heightens our sense of the tragedy uh, that had taken place since the world was created. It's a vivid contrast between God's beautiful creation in chapter 1 and man's perversion in chapter 6 that is being being portrayed the God who once looked upon his creation and saw beauty and goodness the works of his hands the apex of his creation mankind the apple of his eye now looks upon mankind and he only sees wickedness uh, the every imagination and thought filled with evil uh, corruption perversion and violence and God says enough is enough I've had enough God says, I've had enough, I've drawn the line. Uh, I will be judging the world uh, with a flood. And so in chapter 6, verse 8, the Bible draws our attention to Noah. After stating that God looks upon the earth and sees the wickedness, sees the corruption, sees the violence and perversion, the Bible says, and, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Dedekidna stated that, that uh, Noah almost emerges uh, in this narrative as a complete man of God. Not merely as someone who, who is the best of the bad. But someone who emerges as a complete man of God against the tide of wickedness and ungodliness. Noah stands as a towering man of righteousness. And, and, and this just goes to show uh, that you really, really don't need to be or to rely 
on the influence around you to serve God. You don't need to always look for external encouragement or, or godly influence around you, though it's needed and it's necessary. But yes, Noah, uh, probably one in millions, making a righteous stand for God, walking with God, blameless in his generation. And so when you walk with God, you don't mind walking alone because you know you and God are the majority. Okay. And so the Bible describes Noah in three ways. If you read in uh, chapter 6 verse 9, the uh, Bible says this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation and he walked with God. Those are the three descriptions of Noah. Firstly, he was a righteous man. This is a reference to uh, his right living, his moral behavior, his ethics. Um, he did uh, right in his in his time. He lived right. He spoke right. Uh, he behaved right. Secondly, the Bible tells us that he was blameless in his generation. And Walkie states that that Noah gave his contemporaries no excuse to criticize his conduct. And thirdly, uh, Noah was a man, and he's said to have walked with God. Now this phrase is mentioned in chapter 5 verse 24 uh, which speaks of Enoch. Bible says Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Enoch, say, uh, Enoch was saved from death by God because he walked with God. And so this phrase uh, and this scripture which speaks of Noah walking with God links Noah with Enoch in the godly line of Seth. And just as, as Enoch uh, walked with God and was saved from death. So we find Noah walking with God and is saved from the from the flood. Uh, we also see in Genesis chapter six verse thirteen, Bible says God then goes on to tell Noah to prepare an ark, and He gives Noah the specifications of the ark, um, and He tells Noah to build the ark. And for one hundred and twenty years, Noah builds the ark according to the specifications that God gave him and uh, he built this ark uh, in, in a square shape uh, shoebox looking um, shape and uh, this boat wasn't particularly designed to sail but mainly to to float it took him and his sons 120 years to prepare the ark and what was interesting uh, when we read uh, between verses 13 and 17 of chapter 6 is an interesting uh, substance that, that God tells Noah to use to seal the ark so that water doesn't uh, seep through the ark. And I'm going to read this passage for you and then uh, we'll get on to what the substance actually, actually is or, or signifies. Okay, so verse 13 of chapter 6 says, And God said to, to Noah, uh, the end of all flesh has come before me, uh, for the earth is filled with, with violence. Um, and behold, I will destroy them with the flood. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Uh, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Okay, so he told Noah, uh, the substance you will use uh, must be pitch. Okay, verse 15. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be... 300 cubits, it's width 50 cubits, and it's height uh, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it uh, to a cubit from above. Set the door of the ark in the side, and you shall make it lower and second and third decks. In other words, there were three floors on the ark. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy uh, from under the heaven all flesh in which there is a breath of life uh, everything that is on the earth shall die okay so so the substance used was to seal the the wood on the ark uh, was was pitch and according to kidna both uh, both the verb and and noun for this word is copa the hebrew word copa uh, which means in its basic meaning to cover it's a word uh, that is also translated and uh, as as atonement in in Hebrew, and and this is not a 
coincidence. Uh, this substance is best suited to, to the story of, of, of judgment and salvation. Okay, so the exact nature of, uh, of this pitch, uh, they say may have been like a resinous substance of some kind, um, a gluey-like uh, substance, but it's, it suffice as a perfect covering for the ark to keep the waters uh, out, to keep the waters of judgment out. And just as this substance, this cover, this, um, this pitch was used to uh, to cover the ark and keep the waters of judgment out. And likewise, um, uh, Morris stated, Henry Morris stated that the blood of Jesus provides the same kind of atonement for us uh, that, that prevents the waters of judgment from, from ruining us and bringing destruction upon us. So just as the pitch was used to cover the wood in the ark to prevent the water from getting into the ark, uh, and to protect the ark from, from ruin, likewise the blood of Jesus covers every believer from the judgment and wrath of God that is to come. And it's through the blood of Jesus that we are saved. It's through the blood of Jesus that we have redemption. It's through His blood uh, that we have been brought near to God. Romans 5 says, much more than uh, present having now been justified by His blood, we are saved from the wrath of God through Christ. In other words, it's the blood of Jesus uh, that has justified us and saved us from the wrath of God. The blood of Jesus makes for perfect atonement. And then, and then God tells Noah in chapter 6 verse 18 uh, that he's going to make a covenant with him, establish a covenant with him and, and, and his family. And then chapter 6 closes off uh, in verse 22 with the statement that Noah did according to all that the Lord, that Lord God had commanded him. And Brueggemann states it's almost as though the narrator Moses wants to bring our attention to Noah uh, and the stand that he made and the walk that he had, uh, that he had before God. Mm. Mm.